Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Hey, Weather Geeks. This week we have a very special episode for you featuring guest host Chris Warren, meteorologist at the Weather Channel. Chris is going to take us to the front lines of the firefight, 2018's devastating wildfires. The Weather Channel correspondent Dave Malkoff shares stories of the brave men and women who put their lives on the line and the struggles they face in day-to-day life. Also joining the conversation is Jess Gardetto from the National Interagency Fire Center. She examines what's made 2018 so bad and potential solutions to putting out some of the fires before the rainy season, which is still months away. Without further ado, Chris Warren. Welcome to the Weather Geeks podcast. On this episode, we are talking about the deadly and devastating wildfire season. Keep in mind, it is still relatively early in this season. It's August. It's still summer. And some parts of the West see wildfires extending well through much of the fall season before the rainy season really kicks in. And joining us today are Weather Channel correspondent Dave Malkoff, uh, who spent countless hours covering the fires and covering those who fight those fires. Then later, we're going to get some insight and get some perspective from the National Interagency Fire Center with Jess Gardetto. We begin, though, with Dave Malkoff. And Dave, uh, you know, you've been out there. You've seen it firsthand. Uh, What is the first thing, if you can go back to the first time you were on scene of either an active fire or the aftermath, what was the first thing that struck you? Well, that goes back a long ways. I've been uh, covering fires out west since about 2003 when I was working at a station in Las Vegas. Then I worked in Los Angeles. So, uh, I mean, seeing a fire up close is very different than seeing it on TV because you get the heat of the fire even if you're not right up next to it, you get the heat, you get the smoke, you have the burning embers, and you need to be fully aware of where you are and, and how fast you can get out of that spot, too. So it's it's an exciting thing to do, but it's a, it's a very dangerous uh, job if you're a journalist or if you're a firefighter or if you're just there, uh, if you're there protecting your house or if you're there because you're evacuating. There are lots of dangers around a, a active fire. It, it depends on how big it is, how fast it's moving, how fast the winds are going, that kind of thing. Now, you mentioned the firefighters, yeah. and this really is a firefight. There's, you know, the terminology is similar. There's, there's, there's the front lines. Yeah, this is this is a war. Yeah, it is a war. Yeah. What, um, what, what do you think it is that that draws the firefighters? Well, from when when you've talked to them, why do they want to do this and spend so much time away from their families? You know, it's interesting that, that we talk about it being a war. Uh, I I spent some time covering the uh, second Gulf War in Iraq, and you get the same kind of it, folks. It, it's like a sense it, yeah, of duty. Yeah, it, it really is. They they have a charge. They have a duty. Um, they're not making a ton of money doing this, but they have dedicated their lives 
to fighting wildland fire, just like soldiers have dedicated their lives to uh, fighting for freedom overseas and here at home. And you brought a clip. You've, you've, you've done a special on this. It's called Firestorm, and it actually airs coming up this Friday. If you're listening to this podcast when it comes out on Wednesday the 15th, it would air on Friday the 17th of August 2018, and it airs um, pretty consistently here on the Weather Channel. If you just look on your DVR, you can find that. So the first thing you're going to hear is a firefighter who actually works in this large C-130 plane. You always see those planes, right? They're, they're Hurricane yeah. Hunter planes, the same same ones. Yeah, and but these have been retrofitted with tanks underneath them that carry this stuff called Foscheck. That's that red or pink yeah. stuff that comes out of the plane. It's kind of a goop that hits all the vegetation underneath, and it, it puts in a kind of a fire break. But there's a personal story here. The people who fly these planes give up a lot of their life. Let's take a listen. Here's clear down to 5,100 if you got me in sight. I've got you. American pilots have been fighting fire from the sky since they came back from fighting World War II. And you're clear to drop. That is nasty. It's really nasty, Brent. Today's tankers can carry nearly 20,000 gallons of water over a hot zone. So here's how it normally works. There's fire on a ridge, ground crews radio in, they need a little help, and then air support pilots come flying in low and slow on a plane. Or, okay, here we go, here we go. We saw firsthand in Florida a giant helicopter. That is really something to see the water spraying you in the face as this dual rotor Chinook is pulling up water from this country lake. It's one of those careers that's more of a lifestyle than a job. These planes save families on the ground. But the families who are on board? I consider myself to be a firefighter just like anybody else. They end up missing out on a lot. Uh, my name is Brian Baker, and I'm an air tanker captain for Colson Aviation, uh, flying this uh, Lockheed C-130 air tanker right now. I've got a five-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old, and a 13-year-old. You're gone for how much of the year? Um, nine months. Nine months yeah. out of 12 months. In 2011, I did 297 days straight. I, I was home four days and 297 days. I love you. Brian's wife, Tara, is nearly 500 miles away. We're at the easy part of the day now. She's managing a home with three kids pretty much by herself. This is Major. He's, he's our fire season baby. Okay. So you're changing diapers and you're running around making coffee and, and you've got like a minute left before you have to leave. Many people realize this is the reality for single parents and military parents. But it's easy to forget that this struggle is happening all over the country more and more as large armies of firefighting crews are out on longer and longer deployments nationwide. We worry constantly while he's flying on fires, but try not to let anyone know how scary it really is waiting for that. I just landed text from him. Everybody at my house understands what I'm out here doing. And they... But sometimes it's hard for little kids. Oh, it's understand. horribly hard. Yeah, especially especially for my son. Skin of my rinky They don't know when they're going to come home. And... And it just... It just sucks. Dave, listening to that, I got chills. 
when, easy to get chills, yeah. Yeah, when he said 297 days in home for only four. And I know you're a parent, I'm a parent, and I can only imagine what that would be like. Sometimes we're out on the road for a long time. But not, not that long. We're not out on the no, road for no. nine months out that's of the, the year. That's deployment is what that is. And sometimes, most of the time, we get to go back to a hotel room. These guys... Sometimes they have to camp out there or, or stay in, in kind of like a complex that they build out near the fire line. It's, it's really, really tough work. And, and on that note, how, how tough is this work on the front lines, which is also now by uh, – it's a nationwide effort and even an international effort with firefighters coming in uh, to, to help out with this fight. How tough is it there on the yeah, ground? Yeah, you should see the trucks lined up. Yeah. These trucks are not just from the local area. These trucks are coming from several states away or across the country. Whenever the call goes out, these firefighters come from all over. People who have the training descend on the place where the fire fight is needed. And you have another clip that helps illustrate just how difficult it is, right? It's really, really difficult to fight in this terrain. We're talking about hills that just, like, they go up really, really high, and the vegetation is thick in some places, and even if it's burned, the ground could still be burning underneath you. It's very dangerous. you got to walk, watch where you walk. Trees could be coming down on you. And just climbing up the hill, as you're about to hear, is very, very difficult. In fact, I tried to do it myself. Wow. Look at how easily... This dirt pushes away when you grab onto it with your foot or with your hand. And we've got fire right over here, too. We haven't even started walking up this hill just yet. And we also don't have the kind of equipment the Cal Fire folks have. Fire spreads on an almost microscopic level. Tiny little crispy edges of plants get superheated by hairdryer-like winds long before they burst into flames. So what the wind does is it pushes the heat coming off of the flames downwind and it preheats and pre-dries the fuel in front of the fire, making the ignition easier and faster. If little particles or branches or twigs or leaves break loose from the vegetation that's burning, they can fly downwind and start spot fires so the fire basically leaps over itself. Jumping around and over the heads of firefighters who have to climb large hills to get to the next patch of fire. I just climbed up that hill. I didn't have any equipment on me at all. Right. Well, yeah, the average about 45, 50 pounds is what we carry. So basically essentials, food, water, radios, extra batteries. We're trying to get as much of this done before any weather changes. Here in California, firefighters have help from minimum security inmates. They're the ones in the orange jumpsuits. They all work together to get a hose up here to spray the flames down with water. But their main goal is to get ahead of the fire. The only way to stop a fire from spreading is to physically dig a line in the ground. You stop its advance. You see grass, trees, bushes, they'll all burn. But if you cut that away and leave a dirt trench, you stop the flames. That's what it means when you hear people talking about a fire being 50% contained. That means half of the fire is burning inside the line they cut around it. Firefighters use bulldozers, shovels, chainsaws, whatever they can haul up the hill to cut that line. 
is I assigned an engine to go up on that road where the water tender is, and they're going to cut a line straight down this hill. So what happens when the engine can't get there when the fire is too deep off the trail? Firefighters parachute in from above, chainsaws and all. Those firefighters are called the smoke jumpers. Those firefighters don't have any access to water at all. They have to just cut the fire line by any means necessary. Chainsaws or or just it, to put power tools or whatever they've got on them. It, you're saying smoke jumpers because they jump out of airplanes. Yeah. Right? They to, have, to get to the location. They jump out of airplanes. They pull their chute. They only have a few seconds before they get to the chute opening. And then they have a few minutes before they hit the ground. When they hit the ground, they could be there for up to 21 days fighting fire right on those front lines. And they're trained at a place called NIFSI, which is up in Idaho. And they actually get all these firefighters together and they are the most elite firefighters there at the jump house which they call it at the uh, national interagency fire center and you mentioned uh nifsi they're the national interagency fire center we're going to speak with a, a spokesperson uh, coming up in just a little bit about that we're going to talk about uh the current fires that are going on right now we're going to talk about what it's going to take uh, to get these fires out even if the rain doesn't come in time or enough significant rain comes in time. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Jess Gardetto is going to be kind enough to join us. But before we get to that, Dave, what do you think? When you go out and you shoot a story, you talk to people, there's always something that doesn't translate on TV. What do you think is missing? Is it the scale? Is it a smell? Is it the heat? There's something that just 2D television can't It's re- It's really the scale of how big these fires are and how long it takes to get from one side to another and how hard it is to just just go through this terrain. I mean, sometimes these are huge, huge mountains that's going over. And to get on top of that mountain with a bulldozer or to get on top of it with a team, it's incredible work and it's extremely hot and it's extremely smoky. And that's why you see firefighters losing their lives every once in a while, because sometimes it just gets so intense that the smoke overtakes them or they go over a ridge as we saw in this last fire with with some crews that were trying to push a bulldozer through there or uh, people who are trying to put the power back in order. It's really, really difficult, dangerous work. As you said, this is war, and the war is increasing as we see more heat around these areas and and more drought conditions. There's just more fuel and there's more time for this to burn. They used to have this fire season that would last for several months out of the year. Now there's no fire season at all. It's just a, basically a year-round proposition for these firefighters. All right, so we're going to talk about here coming up in just a few moments. We're going to take a short break with uh, Jess Gardetto is going to join us from the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho, to talk about this remarkable season already and how the weather plays a role in either helping or hurting the firefight. Now joining us from the National Interagency Fire Center, Jess Gardetto. Jess, thank you very much for joining us. And first off, what is your reaction to the season we're experiencing so far? So far, I would say we're definitely experiencing a, an above normal fire season. Even if you just look at California alone, for example, 
California has burned more acres year to date than they have in at least the last five years, very likely the last 10 to 15. It, that seems pretty significant, though. I mean, when I typically think of the California wildfire season, I'm thinking fall. Right. And as you know, California could still have four, five, even six months possibly left of fire season. So, so how do you, you said it, it's above normal. That doesn't sound that bad. Well, only because we have seen years where we do have a lot of large wildfires on the landscape. If you look at 2015, for example, we set a record for acres burned. Uh, last year was very similar. We burned over 10 million acres. So we don't want to paint that picture that this is the quote unquote worst fire season we've ever seen. However, it's definitely up there with one of the above normal fire seasons, at least in the last 10 to 20 years, and perhaps even as far as human recorded history. We have to remember, I think, too, that for some people, this is the very worst fire season that has ever happened. The people that have lost their lives and loved ones that have lost everything in their homes. And this is a question for, for both of you, Jess, you and Dave. Uh, with everything that's that's happened, sometimes entire neighborhoods are wiped out, do you think fires get enough media attention? I think they they don't to a certain degree because, like you said, you know, they really only – people really only seem to care about them when they are threatening homes, which, of course, that makes sense. I mean, like you said, this is serious. People are losing their homes. People's lives have been lost. That is very extreme. But, you know, for example, um, we've heard a lot about these fires in California because of that, which makes perfect sense. Although we just had a fire burn in Nevada that was over 450,000 acres. It burned that many acres in just a couple of days. And you didn't hear a lot about that one because, of course, you know, it's remote. It makes sense. So I concur with that, though. I think that it's not covered as much as you would think it would be. I'm sitting across from someone who covers it and, and does a fantastic job. And Dave, that's the question. There's a special airing on the Weather Channel that that you've done. What do you think? It's interesting because she was talking about the fire and she was talking about the fire in Nevada, and there are fires in Alaska. Yes, that will burn a million acres, and no one will really pay much attention to that. But then you have these large fires in California and large fires in Oregon, and and a lot of people are paying attention to that. I mean, you look back at the 80s. And the Western U.S. had about 140 large wildfires per year. But by the 90s, it grew to 160 per year. And more recently, it's about 250 large wildfires per year. And that's just it's just growing bigger and bigger. In in the 1970s, there was a wildfire season lasting about five months, as you said. But these days, it's seven months or larger these wildfires are very, very long and they're very expensive. The USDA says that the 2017 U.S. wildfire, that season cost a record $2 billion. So it's on par with things like hurricanes or huge national disasters like that. And what you're talking about is is when these fires encroach on civilization, you know, where where there are structures, where maybe we have built where we shouldn't have built. Because, and Jess, I don't know if you want to comment on this or not, but wildfires are a natural part of the ecosystem in some cases. Yes, that's for sure. And I think, you know, again, I don't want to minimize the horrible losses that people have endured. Even if you just look at the car fire, for example, like you said, homes have burned, lives have been lost. That is horrendous. But fire is also part of most of the Western ecosystems. 
in most of our country. So that is one thing I think that we tend to forget is that fire is natural. Although, of course, you know, it's not natural to see homes burn and lives be lost. And so that sort of skews that view of fire having a natural role in nature and in most of our ecosystems. It, there, I was going to say there, there are actually some uh, conifers that will not open up their seeds until they are exposed to fire. They have this kind of resin that is over the seeds, and that has to be melted away by the fire. So it is is that much of a connected part of the ecosystem that these trees will not reproduce until they have fire. Now, the problem is us. We're moving closer to the fire zone. It's known as the wildland urban interface or the WUI. Now, where this is where cities they creep into these potential fire zones. And in the past 20 years, between 1990 and 2010, the area, this WUI, this wildland urban interface that grew by some 46 million acres. So we added 46 million acres to this uh, interface right between the woods and the places where people live. Of course, people like living in the wilderness. They think that it's just beautiful to live there, and it is. But the danger is real, and adding more than 13 million homes in the danger zone, that has shown that it's deadly time and time again because people are moving closer to these fire zones. And that's where the fire fight comes into. And there is a weather factor in this fight. And Jess, that's where I want to go right now with this is is how does the weather play a role? What are the, the day-to-day weather conditions what do those mean for firefighters? We know when it rains, that's that's good. And if it rains enough to put out the fires, that's great. But what about like what we've been seeing, where it's day after day of dry weather? What are the small-scale features that either help or hurt that firefight? So, exactly. These hot and dry temperatures that are persisting day after day after day, that is what can, is what's contributing to this extreme fire behavior like we saw in the car fire. And if we can get rain, even small amounts of rain here and there, that helps incredibly because rain not only helps with the fire itself, but it brings up the relative humidity, which makes it much easier for firefighters to not only fight the fire, but it also decreases fire behavior. So it makes it a lot less active. But unfortunately, we're not we're not looking at any of these temperatures going away anytime soon. Now, now you mentioned relative humidity. Relative humidity tends to go up in the morning as well. Will, will you explain humidity, the relative humidity, and how that is helpful? So relative humidity actually decreases fire behavior because it, it basically makes the vegetation less able to burn. And so it makes that fire activity slow, which is why a lot of firefighters end up working at night because that relative humidity will come up at night, like you said, into the early morning hours. So that's also when they'll do burnouts on fires because that's when you have the greatest chance of burning that fuel without it becoming out of control and then you know losing control of it and then you have another problem on your hand. So relative humidity definitely plays a big role in firefighting and, and we receive notices when the relative humidity gets down into those really low digits um, so that you know firefighters know, oh wow, the relative humidity has gotten really low, this is going to really exacerbate fire behavior. 
and Jess has a team of meteorologists there in the office. These are called incident meteorologists. And in the in the past few years, the request for these incident meteorologists who actually go out there into the field with their computers and they put out these hyper local forecasts for the firefighters, those requests have just gone up because they need them more and more and they only have a certain amount of people on the team. And and Dave knows this uh, because you visited there in Boise, Idaho. In fact, you're wearing the T-shirt right now. I, I am. I, I'm wearing the T-shirt from out front. The uh, yeah, it, it's uh, they've got a kind of cool logo on there, which is just like a it's a flame. It's a flame inside a circle, and you see that all over the buildings out there, especially on the jump shack for the firefighters who jump out of the airplanes. Those are the smoke jumpers, and and you see you see these logos everywhere. But it's it's a it's a huge operation and you should see them in action they put together these camps and they set them up in no time and you know they're cooking dinner for people they're uh, sleeping all these firefighters uh, they, they have to have a place for them to print out maps these maps come out pretty much every couple hours and uh, and there's a whole graphics team this is this is a real deal when they get to to these to these uh, national interagency camps that they put up there and one of the big things, of course, and we talk about it a lot, is the wind and how variable that wind can be. Jess, will you speak to that, the wind factor in fighting fires? The wind is always an issue, and that's what has been a factor in a lot of unfortunate firefighter fatalities is the wind has shifted unexpectedly or we've gotten really high winds over a fire that weren't predicted and the fire can basically move almost as fast as the wind, especially if you're looking at a rangeland environment. So I spent a number of years on a fire crew, and I remember the wind constantly being an issue. If you have 30-mile-an-hour winds on some of these fires, that fire is going to move at 30 miles an hour, and, and most people can't outrun the 30 miles an hour. So wind is always an issue, and if we are predicting high winds, then firefighters know that in some cases they're not going to be able to get a very good handle on the fire until those winds die down. And if fire is blowing up the hill, it's going to go a lot faster than it will going down the hill. So you got to be very careful at where you place your team. And Dave, yeah, on that note, Jess, uh, I, I think of this, the, the angle of the hill, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think of this as how you build the campfire. You build it like a, a teepee. So the flames will reach the other parts of the the, the campfire. These the flame lengths, is that, is that, they, they may be 30-foot flame lengths, and they're licking up the side right, of but the that's hill. Right, yeah, yeah. the, the slope works mm-hmm. in the same way, doesn't it? It does. And when you have a hill involved, that wind will, like you said, push that fire up the hill. And then the heat actually preheats the vegetation above the fire. So that only contributes to this extreme fire behavior. It creates this fiery funnel that then pushes that fire up the hill even faster. So it's definitely a phenomenon. And unfortunately, it's been a factor in a lot of firefighter deaths. And with that, as a firefighter out there on the front lines or even from a management position, what do you go to bed each night hoping for, hoping to hear about in the morning when it comes to the weather conditions? When it comes to weather, We hope that we aren't going to get winds, as we mentioned, and we hope that we're going to get some cooler temperatures. That would really help, not only with fire behavior, but, man, it would really provide some relief to firefighters that are out there that they're fighting fire in in temperatures that are above 100 degrees, and then they're next to a fire that's already hot. So those are the two things that we really think about when we go to sleep at night. And, and of course, 
the first thing that we think about is, please, God, don't let us wake up and find out that there's been a fatality. And everybody's wearing these yellow Nomex outfits, and that's not a very breathable material, but it is a fire retardant material, and you have to make sure that you're wearing that on the front lines, but it, it just makes you hotter. It does. It's not, yeah, it's it's the best material that you can wear as a wildland firefighter, but like you said, it's not very breathable. It's, it's not the most comfortable material to hang out in for 15 plus hours a day. And there are so many firefighters out there right now, and there likely will be for a long time. When you look at all of the western states, I think all of the western states have at least had some fires, some of the larger fires. Jess, what do you think it will take to get some of these big fires, uh, when we look at California, out before the rain comes? What does it take to do that, or is that even possible? It takes a lot of coordinated efforts uh, with firefighters, both state, local, city firefighters, all the cooperators that are involved in these fires. And then in some cases, like you said, we need a break in the weather. Um, And unfortunately, we're not expecting that anytime soon. But in some cases, in some of these fires, especially some that are more remote, um, they can burn until we get fall weather um, or what they call a season ending weather event. So that means, you know, a decent amount of rain or cooler temperatures. You're, you're talking about months potentially here, especially in California. It's definitely possible. And I do remember last fall, um, so many people were struggling with this because there were so many large wildfires burning in the Northwest in particular. And they were just affecting these people's lives. And they, you know, they were evacuated from their homes time and time again and then told to reevacuate. And it just went on for months. And I just felt so bad for them. And and knowing that we could be looking at something similar this fall, um, we're crossing our fingers that it's not. The scary thing is some of these fires, and and this seems to defy logic, but it does happen. Some of these fires can get into the root systems of plants and trees and burn underground and smolder there for up to a year. And so you have this smoldering happening underground, and then you could have, it is potential, and it has happened in the past, where you have a fire that you think is out, and then all of a sudden, a year later, that same fire comes back like a zombie from underneath the soil and where it has oxygen and comes back and reignites. Exactly. Those are called holdover fires in the fire community. And it happens, especially, believe it or not, in Alaska. It's happened where they've had fires that have been burning and then it snows. And the snow, like you said, you know, just covers up that layer of vegetation and the fire can actually smolder along in that tundra underneath snow even and pop up again when the snow melts in the spring. Absolutely amazing. And we're going to take a little pause here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what's happening today in the West, if that has any implications for later this season, and what could be some of the best and worst-case scenarios. Right now on Weather Geeks, we are speaking with National Interagency Fire Center spokesperson Jess Gardetto and Weather Channel correspondent Dave Malkoff talking wildfires, an amazing season so far, potentially months to go. And we want to talk now about the potential of some hope in sight and what may be scary. So, Jess, to you, what when we look at what's happening right now, what gives you hope and what is either scary or frustrating? What gives us hope is the potential for our temperatures to cool down. 
Um, we haven't really the, the models, you know, as you said, we have a team of weather experts at the fire center that are constantly, constantly looking at this all day long. And they're not predicting this relief anytime soon, but we've seen it in the past. So that's what we're crossing our fingers for is that we actually get some real fall weather starting in September that will allow firefighters to get a handle on some of these large fires. Large, Largely, though, the fear is that we're not going to get that relief. We saw the same thing happen last year where fire season just kept going and, and firefighters were on fires in California on Christmas Day, which is not normal. And you know, it affects these people's lives, their homes. Um, you know, some people can't even breathe because they're they're inundated with smoke constantly for weeks or months at a time. So we are hoping that the weather will work with us on this one. Fingers crossed. And what does this mean if it doesn't for personnel and for budgets? If it doesn't, we could be looking at another record for bu- budget for fire suppression spending. And then we can be looking at firefighters starting to become really exhausted because it kind of happened last year where we had to really start watching firefighters and fire crews because some of these firefighters started working on fires in the early spring months in you know March, April, and they just kept going and working on fires well into the winter months. And then, of course, they were requesting for firefighter assistance when we had hurricanes. So they didn't get a whole lot of relief last year. And so that's a concern. You know, we've got to make sure that these firefighters who are working hard on the fire line for 15 plus hours a day Mm. don't become exhausted. And and looking at that and knowing that when we look at the way the earth is warming and climate change and the science behind that is showing us that summers are getting hotter and the fire seasons can potentially last longer. I mean, I like to think of this as like the longer range forecast and you have to plan accordingly. What's your reaction and thoughts to the, the, the forecast that these seasons could get longer and things could get hotter? That's exactly going to be our top concern is we're starting to look at no longer having fire seasons. We're looking at a fire year where we just have fire activity year round. And if that's the case, We're going to have to start looking at employing firefighters year-round because a good portion of our wildland firefighters are seasonal employees. So if we're going to have fire seasons year-round, then we're going to have to greatly expand the wildland fire program and and start making some of these positions year-round positions because how else are you going to employ firefighters year-round if you don't have permanent positions? So I think we're looking at... And a serious expansion of, of wildland firefighting profession and, and the programs themselves. Well, you were talking about the good things and the bad things. I, I do have one good thing. Uh, incident meteorologists are working on a new technology that could come online in the next couple of years where they could, it's a computer program. And, and you have computer programs here at the Weather Channel where you can predict all sorts of different weather patterns. But what they want to predict is fire behavior. So in the future, they're going to have this computer system where they can look at the short-term forecast and say, hey, tomorrow the flames are going to be here or the flame lengths are going to be this high or they're going to be going uphill or they're going to be going downhill or they're going to be going in a fire whirl or a fire tornado. You can pinpoint exactly what the fire is going to do with this new computer program and they're doing experiments with that right now and they're trying to figure out if they can predict what the fire is going to do. But right now it kind of has a mind of its own. And and with that, Jess, 
there's a lot we don't know, and we try to predict what the future is going to be. If there was something that we don't know that we did know, what would be that crucial piece of information that you wish you knew when you're fighting fires? A lot of it is the weather, like you said, because, you know, as much as we can try to predict and as much as we can assess what we think the weather is going to do, for instance, when um, 19 firefighters lost their lives during the Yarnell Hill fire, a lot of that was due to unexpected weather. We had a shift in the winds. We had extreme weather that showed up unexpected. So that's one thing that we would love to have is a better way to predict what the winds are going to do, what the temperatures are going to do, and have that available to us immediately. They were kind of a, in a bowl out there in Arizona, in rural Arizona, and, and the, a thunderstorm came above them and just, it basically, they were not expecting it. And the wind shifted and they had to deploy their uh, f- their fire shelters, which are these little boxes that you pull over yourself, it it was terrifying for those 19 firefighters, and and you don't want that to happen. If you can predict what is going to happen in, in in real time, then you can prevent accidents like that. Exactly. For people who aren't might not be sure with the thunderstorms, you said the thunderstorm. You might think, well, the rain's favorable. That's good for fires. But Jess, we know that when these thunderstorms happen, they bring a lot of cold air down, which you think would be good, but they also can make the winds go in a different direction than they may have been five minutes earlier. How scary is it when you're out there when there's thunderstorms or those those big clouds that could change the weather pattern or could change the wind direction? That is exactly the top concern for firefighters on the line is that they're going to end up with a cell or a thunderstorm over them that, that wasn't predicted. And like you said, it creates erratic winds that shift unexpectedly and in a moment's time. And that really makes it unsafe for firefighters and it makes that fire so much more difficult to control. So if there is some you know technology that we could develop in the future that would help predict more of these thunderstorms and and you know predict exactly what the winds are going to do and what the temperature is going to do man that would be a huge help to firefighters and for firefighters or the fires that are burning in the west is there any misconceptions that the the public may have regarding any of that that you want to clear up and or is there anything that you see when you're watching tv or listening to the radio that you, people get wrong is there anything you really want people to, to be aware of? I think one of the biggest misconceptions after working in fire for most of my life is the fact that firefighters can't save every home. Um, ideally, that would be on our wish list if we could have a firefighter or a fire engine in every driveway of every home that's threatened by a fire. But unfortunately, that's that's not the case. And We've lost too many firefighters' lives trying to save homes that weren't defensible in the first place. So what we would what would really help the situation is if homeowners made their homes more resistant to fire. And that can be done with fairly simple landscaping techniques and then improvements to the home. You know, of course, replacing a roof is expensive, but you can do things around your home that will really increase its chance of surviving a wildfire by itself. And of course, there's no foolproof method here. Um, You know, like the car fire, for example, I'm sure some of those homes that burned, they probably did have a lot of firewise landscaping around them. And and unfortunately, there's no foolproof method. But um, I think that's a common misconception is that, you know, well, the the firefighters are going to come in and they're going to save my home. And man, I wish that we could do that. But unfortunately, it's not always possible. 
there is a exhaustion that people get into when they get evacuated over and over again from a neighborhood. And at, at some point they think, I'm not going to leave this time. I left the three times before and nothing happened to my house. But you, you need to really, really listen to what the firefighters say, really see where those evacuation zones are. And if it's not the fire, the next thing that comes is the debris flow or the mudslide, as some people call it. But it's not actually a mudslide. These areas that have been burned away by the fire after it came through, if it's on a hillside, there's nothing holding that hill back and the whole mountain is going to come apart we've seen that happen in montecito california where all of these boulders and we're not talking about little rocks we're talking about six foot seven foot 13 foot boulders that come roaring through the neighborhood and if after fire you'll get these debris flows and every single time you're going to have to evacuate from your house if you're living in that wildland urban interface the one thing that i could tell people is if they tell you to move you should move and just on that, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of uh, unknowns or variables. If you had a magic wand, how would you use it? I would slow or, um, I don't know if slow is the right word, but allow people to smartly plan when they build their homes in the wildland urban interface because that is another issue that is, is compounding the wildland fire situation People are building more and more homes in the wildland urban interface. Like if you look at a state like Idaho, for example, it's one of the fastest growing states in the country. And there's a vast expansion of people building homes into this wildland urban interface. And so that only makes the problem more difficult, right? Because you've got more homes in these areas, so it complicates fire suppression problems. And what a lot of people may not realize, too, is when you have to pull firefighters off of the fire line to try and protect homes, you're often allowing the fire to become larger because you've got people doing structure protection around homes. Now, of course, we're not saying like we don't want to save homes, but we are saying that the more homes we have, the bigger the problem. So I think that would be part of the magic wand is is a lot of smart planning when it comes to development and then building in these areas. And then um, people being smart about their, the homes they build. Um making them firewise and, and making them resistant to wildfire. We will take you out there. We'll show you what this firefight is like, show you where the urban interface is and take you up with these firefighters who jump out of planes. That's coming up. It's a show called Firestorm that we've put together. It's an hour-long documentary that airs Friday, August 17th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on the Weather Channel. So if you set your DVR, you'll actually be able to see this stuff instead of just hearing it on your podcast. I love the podcast. I, I'm i on planes all the time. So there's a lot of podcasts I listen to, and this is definitely one of them. I'm happy to be here. And, and just with that, we want to give you the last word. You know, the last word is, I guess, too, um, we have a lot of human-caused fires. Unfortunately, I love humans as much as anybody else, but they do cause a lot of fires. In fact, they cause most of the fires in the country on an average basis. So that's another magic wand that we'd love to have is um, having people be incredibly careful with anything that could cause a fire and, and becoming educated about how to prevent them. Um, so that's that's just, I guess, the last word as far as um, if you're doing anything that could possibly cause a fire if you're going out into the woods or even if you're just towing a trailer just educate yourself on on what how what you're doing could cause a fire as Smokey said 
Only you can prevent forest fires. Exactly. If I could do Smokey's voice, I totally would right now. (laughs) (laughs) Not even going to try. All right. We want to say thank you so much and the best of luck to you and, of course, all of the thousands of firefighters and their families. Uh, Our thoughts and prayers, of course, with all of them and the victims uh, of all of the fires we've had to deal with. Uh, Thanks to Dave Malkoff for joining us and spending time. And a very special thank you, Jess Gardetto with the National Interagency Fire Center and Town Square Media Boise and Mark Long for helping make this discussion possible. Thank you all very much, and we'll catch you next time on Weather Geeks. I'm Chris Warren. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.